The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hi there. For those of you just joining our community, I am so glad to have you here. And for all of you who've been around a while, thank you. Thank you for being a part of In the Arena. Our show and our work have grown so much this past 12 months, and that growth has helped us all understand what you love hearing from us and from our guests. I am excited to keep making each episode feel more specific to what matters to you. And in doing that, we realized we're giving you tons of knowledge, but also super accessible tools to help you improve your life every single day. So we're doing a thing. Coming your way in season six this September, we'll be renaming our show to, drumroll please, Every Day Better with Leah Smart. I can't wait to give you more episodes where I share the studio with amazing humans having better conversations that'll improve your life. So look for us in September with a new name and some new cover art that I am obsessed with. See you soon. Does food tell us who we are and where we come from? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. Today, I got to spend a little time with Anya von Bremsen. She's a pianist turned food author who just finished her eighth book called National Dish. And in it, she explores how food is the gateway to conversations about individual and collective identity, our narratives, and how it can be a conduit for heightening our empathy for each other, which I believe is so needed right now. Her goal? To have each of us appreciate the politics, economics, history, and personal storytelling that go into every dish you think you know. Here's Anya. This book is about how food reflects who we are and where we come from, and specifically how it reflects our national identity. But that identity changes. And there's an episode at the end of the book, I consider myself Russian-speaking Jewish-American. And at the end of the book, the war in Ukraine happens. And it ends with a very poignant epilogue about me cooking borscht, which is a beet soup that both Ukraine and Russia claim as their own. But Russia has been weaponizing it as a part of a wartime propaganda, saying this is our version. Ukrainians get very upset. This is something that my mother cooked every day when I was a child that she still cooks. But suddenly I'm thinking, who am I? Is this dish Russian, Ukrainian. My mom's family is actually from Ukraine, but she also considered herself Russian speaker and culturally Russian Jewish American. But suddenly our identities changed because we no longer wanted to be Russian. It was kind of a way of renouncing who we were and where we were coming from. So your intentions changed. Suddenly my intention in the end of the book was to really understand who I was through this particular dish. And is the goal for people who read it or listen to you on this show or other shows that they get more curious about who they are through food? Or what's what do you hope for people? Absolutely. I think it's for people to understand that food is a lot more than just what's on the plate and what we've consumed today. 
it's more than consumerism, right? It's more than something we pay for or we go out to a restaurant. But it reflects so much about our past, about our culture, about our national identity, which can be problematic and very fascinating and interesting. My intention is for people to use food as a getaway into all these other larger issues that it carries with it. Because food is just so incredibly meaningful. How did you get here? I know you started at Juilliard. You were going to become a pianist. You had a hand injury, right, that led you to then write your first book. Tell me about your story. I grew up in the USSR, and it was very difficult living there. We had no food. There was shortages and long lines and political repressions. So in 1974, my mom decided to emigrate. And at that time, it was still the Iron Curtain, so immigration was very difficult. But we became stateless refugees. I was 11. My mom was 40 with two tiny suitcases and just $200 that we were allowed to exchange from the rubles. And we were thrust into this world which we knew nothing about. And it was really a learning journey. Because imagine, I mean, you are behind this iron curtain. You don't know what the West looks like. So we landed in Philadelphia. And it was a culture shock. And it was very difficult, and my mom cleaned houses for a living, even though she was an English teacher in Russia, until she could find a proper job. And I played piano since I was a child, and she really worked so hard cleaning houses and working at the hospital to put me through music school, and I ended up at Juilliard, which is the best music that's school. That's a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big deal. That's incredible, it's a very yeah. Very tough competition. And that's what I did. I just I had one dream. That was completely obsessing me. I wanted to be this famous concert pianist. I couldn't imagine my life doing anything else. And then like so many athletes or musicians would just practice, practice, practice. I had a hand injury, like this big bump on my wrist. And suddenly I found myself thinking, what am I going to do in life? And just by accident, because I speak several languages, I was translating a cookbook from Italian. And I thought, wow, cookbooks, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I should write my own. So with my ex-boyfriend, who was a writer, we thought, well, maybe we should write a cookbook about uh, the cuisines of the USSR, of the Soviet Union, because they're so diverse. It was an empire, so there's all these different dishes and different ethnicities. So we just wrote a proposal. We sold the book to the best publisher who published The Silver Palette, which was a very fashionable cookbook. Mm-hmm. And that time, that was back in the late 80s. And suddenly, I found myself like with a completely new profession. And it's been a journey, and it's been a learning curve. And I've written six more cookbooks then. And then I became a contributing editor at the Travel and Leisure magazine, then at Food and Wine. I started going to the world's best restaurants and write about that experience. But I never forgot that as a child, food was such uh, an unavailable commodity. As a child, I've had banana maybe twice in my life. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what an avocado was. Mm. So I never forgot. I felt like I was living this parallel life. On the one hand, I was just going around, eating here, traveling. And on the other hand, I never forgot that experience. It was just so vivid. So my first nonfiction cookbook was a memoir called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, which talked about what it was like to have the daily life in a totalitarian state, in a state that was oppressive, that dictated everything about how you lived, where you lived, what you ate. It was just like having this overbearing parents, but a state where you couldn't travel outside. It became uh, very successful. 
it was translated into 19 languages and a lot of people identified with that experience all over the world. You know, I was going to ask you about mastering the art of Soviet cooking because I just am so fascinated by that. And as you're talking about the way in which our food or our food histories shape us as an American-born and Californian, on top of that, California is such a hodgepodge of food, you know? And so I grew up eating all sorts of food. In a sense, I almost felt like in reading your work and looking at this book, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, and thinking about my own experience, I'm like, California kind of doesn't feel like it has one specific cuisine and in a certain way that perhaps, you know, in the USSR, having borscht feels very specific on maybe ways in which other states or even just people who are more seeped in very specific cultures in the United States feel like they have something that is so theirs. I'm just curious, like, how you think about that, because it made me go, wait a minute, do I have a food identity? I would, I, you know, I've lived between California and New York. Maybe that's it, it's variety. Well, it's an interesting question, and this is exactly the question that I wanted to address in National Dish, because we live in a very globalized era. The USSR was actually an empire, which means it was a multi-ethnic disease in different ways, but almost like the U.S., right? You had Uzbek cuisine, Ukrainian cuisine, Belarusian, Lithuanian. These ethnicities, these republics were part of an empire, right? Mm -hmm. And then the empire collapsed, and these republics became independent nations. And their cuisine became, from being Soviet cuisine, they became national cuisine. So as someone who was raised in an empire, which was very multicultural, to someone who came to New York and lived there all her life, which was also extremely multicultural, I was really curious, what is it like to have this really intense and defined food identity, right? What is it like to be Neapolitan, where you have your pizza as something that, you know, was invented in your city? Or what was it like to be in Tokyo and eating your own food and identifying with it? So the question in this book, in National Dish, is very much what happens to identity through food in this era of intense globalization. And the answers are extremely surprising. As the world becomes more globalized, interconnected, you can go to Peru and eat sushi. You can go to Mexico, you know, remote villages, they would eat ramen. This is like the daily food because it's cheap. There's McDonald's everywhere. You can find burgers in Samarkand or in Kathmandu. But that makes us, in fact, seek something that is uniquely local and sometimes national. And we want a connection to a place through food when we travel. So on the one hand, we are becoming more and more globalized. On the other hand, we're becoming essentialist and particularist. And we're seeking roots and we're seeking connections to place through food. And it's kind of this process where the global and the local, they sort of nourish each other. They're almost part of the same whole. As our identities become more dispersed and more complicated and more hyphenated, the more we search for who we are and for our roots. And this is what happened to me personally in that last chapter about Ukraine and Borscht. Do you find yourself in a position of saying one is better than the other or one should be focused on more than the other when you think about that localized kind of desire for the roots and something that connects you back to where you are versus that global ability to be in Peru eating sushi? I think we have a tendency to fetishize what we call authenticity. It's such a, you know, at one point of the book, I said it's such a monster marketing ploy, authenticity, 
oh, you know, we're going to Puerto Rico, so we want to go to a mom, mom and pop place, you know, where people are having mofongo. But we forget that the locals actually want sushi. So the way we eat now is extremely mixed, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's not one thing that's better than the other. We tend to sort of bash globalization, but we're denying people their normal everyday practices. You know, why shouldn't you be craving sushi if you just happen to come from Uzbekistan? Or, I mean, McDonald's represents many things about American imperialism, but yeah, it's still, well, why shouldn't you have a hamburger? At the same time, it's also wonderful and normal to search out what we consider authentic, even though that might be kind of the central casting version of what real authenticity is. Yeah, I mean, when I think of like traveling, I haven't left the country in a couple of years, but I've traveled a lot. And I'm like, you know, when I go places, I am that person who's like, I want to go eat what other people are eating or what I assume other people are eating uh, in other countries. And that is typically because I feel like there's a richness in experience when I'm in that country eating what I believe they eat more often than I do or what they have access to that I may not have access to. And I also think that it's a gateway to how I build empathy and understanding for people who are not in the same place that I'm in. There's so much wrapped up in this that food does become sort of the gateway to experience, to empathy, to like bridging, you know, across boundaries and barriers. No, absolutely. It's a very, very powerful connector and it's a powerful signifier of place. But we shouldn't just kind of project our own essentialist visions of what a local culture should be. We should allow that local people want to have their burger and their sushi and their Caesar salad, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, because there's this kind of almost snobism. Why are these people eating Caesar salad when they should be having their mm. own food? Probably for the same reason that we want to eat their food. Like they want to diversify also. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we're off to a break. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back with author of National Dish, Anya von Bremsen. I know you went to six different locations. Was there ever any like concern or fear about people losing their identity because we are globalized when it comes to food? Oh, absolutely. I think that's such a big impetus in creating, for instance, all this protective organization, you know, the association of the true Neapolitan pizza, all these geographical designations for wines and for cheeses. Mm-hmm. Because in the 90s, especially with the advent of you know, neoliberal culture and, you know, with commodification of everything, identities, all these regional organizations and national branding organizations started getting really worried about what's going to happen because pizza was born in Naples. It's completely connected to Naples. But do you think about it when you get your New York slice? It's a completely different experience. Something Neapolitan started protecting it. And it had to do with marketing as well. I think there's a great deal of anxiety about losing the identity through food. You know, France is constantly adding all this protective 
tariffs and protecting this and uh, pushing foods. Different countries do into UNESCO intangible heritage list. And a lot of these concerns are commercial. Mm-hmm. Because countries are brands at this point and they promote their tourism and they promote their identity and food is a big part of that promotion. So you get all those food fights. Who does this dish belong to and which country should that dish go to? Because there's so many regions, so many countries with the national borders didn't exist until the 20th century. So how do they divide the dish? So it's a big conversation. And yeah, there's a lot of concern that globalization erases our identity, our you know, cultural identity and heritage. But in a way, everyone is aware of it at this point. Consciously or subconsciously. So I think there are just a lot of protective mechanisms, both, you know, from top down and almost in people in general, right? We celebrate our heritage through the foods that we eat. Mm-hmm. I know you speak multiple languages. You're very well traveled. You've lived many places. You're just coming back from Europe right now. What has this experience and this work taught you coming back to this idea of food as a gateway? What are you really learning? I think food is an amazing way of just getting to know people right off the airplane. Mm-hmm. Like what I usually do when I come into a city, I ask the taxi driver, where do they like to eat and what their favorite dishes or where they're coming from. If I'm in Madrid and the taxi driver says, well, I'm from Valencia or Seville or another city in Spain. And you say, oh yes, I was there and I had so-and-so. And there's just this immediately this kind of thing. Oh, my mom makes this. And you, know, you get restaurant recommendations. It's a benign force. And there's something benevolent about it when you can discuss food with a stranger. It really does bring strangers together. Yeah. I'm sure you've shared also incredible meals with people who have been strangers that are no longer. Yes, absolutely. In every country I go to. That's why we like this kind of sense of connection to go to a place full of locals where your elbows are touching Mm -hmm. and where sometimes you share one table, you know, like you go to Singapore, to a hawker stall that serves seafood or in Istanbul to like a joint that has grilled meats and you strike a conversation with a person at the next table or who have to ask to sit at your table because it's crowded. It's a very powerful experience, but this is how you make friends. Yeah. I feel like there's so many instances where, and maybe more historically for me, I used to not cook a lot at home, but I was out many times with people living in New York, you know, with friends and food is the way that we connect. But oftentimes I think we're moving so fast that we don't, realize that we're actually missing something by stopping to sit down and just eat with someone. Also an interesting phenomenon, you know, whenever you go to the restaurant and you start snapping Instagram story of what you're eating and the waiter or the manager says, oh, yes, of course, you have to feed the camera first. Mm. We always use that distinction between actually sharing a meal in a real way, sitting down around the table and just consuming other people's Instagram stories of food Mm -hmm. and eating together that way. And that also connects us, you know, mm-hmm. there's like incredible transnational communities of like so-called foodies who know what the other person ate and who know about the new restaurants, but um, it's really not the same yeah. as sitting down. And so now I make a point of just often turning off my phone and just not taking it out. And it's hard, you know, it's hard to resist the temptations, but it's a slower way of making these connections with who you're eating with. Mm-hmm. Or eating alone. For a while, I would eat and I would just find myself getting on my phone and calling someone and talking to them. And I was like, actually, I'd much rather just 
if I'm going to eat a meal, just to enjoy it by myself and be okay with enjoying a meal by myself and being more aware of what it is I'm eating and noticing how things taste. I mean, we live in such a fast-paced environment that I think we're often just going, all right, how do I scarf whatever I need to scarf down and move on where we miss the opportunity to either, you know, sit with ourselves and just have a moment of quiet or actually build relationships with people that we otherwise wouldn't or deepen relationships with people that we wouldn't. No, I admire that you do that. I'm terrible. I can't. Uh, I, when I'm alone, I just, you know, I multitask and I eat at my desk and go, I don't make that time. But maybe because I eat so much professionally and I'm always with people. Yes. And it's a good advice. I should start developing a sense of purpose. I don't I mean, I think you do a lot of it. <laughs> I think you do a lot of it. So you talked about the fact that you've been in cabs or been with people and brought up a type of food and then you've connected with them. What are some interesting things you've learned about food in researching for this book? It was all about historical research. Mm -hmm. And mainly for that, I, I read books and I talked to historians. Usually taxi drivers you know, will give you some kind of canned version uh, of history. My book has a 25-page bibliography, even though mm -hmm. it's hard and easy to read. But for instance, ramen is something that like, Everyone knows, and everyone thinks it's so Japanese, but it really came, it's a Chinese dish that really took off in Japan around the 1920s, and it was sort of disparaged, you know, as Chinese people's food, but eventually, because it was a cheap, nutritious dish that helped fuel Japan's post-World War II reconstruction boom, it was kind of adopted as a Japanese national dish, mm. which is really interesting. But it originated in China. Yeah, but it's the same thing with pizza, for instance. We think, oh, pizza is, you know, all Italian, big, you know, natural dish. Well, first of all, we forget that the countries that we thought existed for centuries didn't really come into being until very recently. There was no Italy until 1860s. It was a collection of duchess and principalities and papal states, right? And the unification of 1860s created one country. And that happened, that process happened in so many other countries, right? And pizza was not known outside of Naples, outside of southern Italy, until well into the 20th century. And the northern Italians who came and tasted it, for instance, Colondi, the guy who wrote Pinocchio, they just described it as disgusting and filthy. They described it as complicated filth. So there was this kind of slightly racist, you know, attitude wow. from like whiter northern Italians towards what they considered, you know, to be almost Africa. Like, mm. well, southern Italy was dismissed. Oh, yeah. So pizza really had to battle these kind of attitudes. And it was only when Italians started immigrating to the Americas, to North and South America, pizza became popular here, that it really took off as an Italian national dish. And these are the kind of myths that I explore. So every dish was kind of an education. It was really fascinating. When I imagine if this is the kind of exploration you do, it's similar to the kind of exploration I do, but obviously different world or different space, that you are in search of truth and revealing those truths. And what's the purpose of doing that? To understand who we are, because there's a lot of kind of mythologies around everything and a lot of marketing and everyone is trying to sell us something, including identity, right? Mm -hmm. Identities these days are commodities, like, oh, yes, explore your heritage or your work will connect you to your roots. But what are these roots? Who are we really? And what are the origin stories of all these dishes, the real ones? And you just understand how so many things are constructed. And one always wants to search for the truth. But the truth can also be subjective. That's, that's my takeaway. 
I mean, who we are, our identities can change overnight. I mean, if there's a war, it blows off a bit, right? If the pandemic, look what happened during the pandemic. You know, the countries started shutting their borders. There was this vaccine nationalism. It really reinforced, you know, like our country is our fortress kind of attitude. Yeah, I love the point of identity being a commodity. And also, like, it seems there's the layer over the real thing that you're saying is that we should be looking at. And you reminded me of you know, a few years ago, I got a gift of 23andMe and was able to do my DNA testing. And I hadn't prioritized it, um, but I was able to. And being a Black American, I don't have a deep, rich history of who my family was prior to slavery and what that looked like and who I'm related to and and all of those things. Even within slavery, it's very difficult to figure out the real truth of where you come from. And so I was able to get this test done and found where a majority of my family was from. But it was actually nothing in comparison to the work my dad had done. He's really into ancestry. He had done his own work tracing back on his own, just all the way back to members of the family and who existed and where. And so it was interesting to go, oh, wait a minute, from an identity perspective, I'm supposed to feel something by seeing this thing on a piece of paper that says this is who you are genetically. But in reality, it was nothing compared to the stories and the work that my dad had done. I was like, I actually almost don't even care as much about this because I don't feel connected to it just because I see it on paper. I feel more connected to the fact that I know who our family patriarch is, for example. Yeah, and food figures into these stories because every family has a story of a holiday, personal holiday, get-together. Food, you know, in, in the States, food carries the story of slavery, of power struggles, of commercialization and commodification. Uh, and yeah, these, these stories are part of who we are. For those who read the book and who are walking away from our conversation, what do you want us to do or get curious about, like to take away and do differently as a result of reading your book? To appreciate the politics, the economics, the history, and the personal storytelling and narratives that go into every dish that you think you know. You think you know tortillas or pizza or ramen. These are like everyday dishes. But there's just so much layered, fascinating history behind every bite that you eat. Love it. Thank you so much for joining. I'm going to have you answer these three statements for me. The first is, better humans are? Kind. Better work is? Not very stressful. Oh, I like that. (laughs) And a better world has? Understanding. Love that. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure getting to talk with you. And I can't wait to share this conversation and your work with people. Thank you for having me on. Yes. And obviously wishing you the best of luck with the book. Thank you so much. That was pianist turned food author Anya Von Bremsen. Her new book is called National Dish, and you can find it wherever you get your books. I'm going to leave you with a question that came up for me during our conversation which is, what could one more layer of curiosity do for you in any situation? Sure, when it comes to food, culture, and identity, this certainly applies. But how about other things like your interests or when it comes to challenging conversations about beliefs? I find one more layer of curiosity means one more area of understanding and one step closer to building empathy and strengthening our connections whether they exist or we're building them. If this episode resonated with you, share it with a fellow foodie or someone who thinks about their identity as it relates to food and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me why you love our show. I'd love to hear from you. 
And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. If you want my newsletter, you can find it at www.linkedin.com ITA. That's www.linkedin.com ITA for weekly information on how to live even better than you do today. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Asaf Drone makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn original audio and video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.